your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 in your, in your Bibles this morning. Last week, if you were with us, you know that we moved into this section in the book of Matthew where we're considering our Lord's most well-known sermon. And that is a sermon that as a result of the setting that is mentioned in verse number 1, uh, has often been referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And as we noted last week, there are a number of indicators that one of the primary purposes our Lord had in mind with this sermon was the matter of evangelism. And I'm not turning again now, but you can recall that towards the conclusion of this message, he said, just simply calling me Lord is not going to get you into heaven. And he even warned that there would be many who would make that profession. Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord. And they'll kind of tick off the things that they've even done in his service. To whom he ends up saying, depart from me, I never knew you. And when we read those kind of expressions, it is clear that some in the audience that heard him preach that day thought that they were okay with God on account of the fact that they knew a fair amount of the scripture that was available to them. That they had, um, uh, that they had a great religious heritage. I mean, after all, I uh, am part of this group known as the people of God, the chosen people. And and in addition to that, they had, and they cited certain acts of service even that they had performed in the name of God. And yet from the vantage point of Jesus, many of them were not on their way to heaven. Many of them would hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. And what we saw last week in the first three Beatitudes is that people blessed by God. And that's how each of these verses begin, starting with verse 3. Blessed. Or as we talked about, uh, people that are recipients of divine favor. People that are blessed by God are marked by certain qualities that are associated with a repentant heart. You could recall back in chapter 4 and verse 17 that Jesus' preaching theme was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you wonder, what, is it, what would it have been like to have heard Jesus preach that message with that theme? Well, we turn right here, chapter 5, to these Beatitudes, and we begin to see what it is like. What does repentance look like, at least in part? Well, verse number 3, it involves men confessing that they are poor in spirit, that on their own, their spiritual condition is one of destitution. They are, remember we saw this word, that they are spiritual beggars. I have nothing to commend myself to God. And in verse number four, people that are blessed by God, they actually grieve their many offenses against God. Blessed are they that mourn, and that is the action of grieving. And in verse number 5, these people don't react proudly and stiffly when the, when the scripture turns a spotlight on their sin, but they respond, as it says here, blessed are the meek. They respond with a tender brokenness 
about the law of God and the preaching of the word that exposes their sinful condition. And in that state, they will also be marked by a characteristic that is new territory for us this morning in verse number 6, that they will be marked by a radically changed appetite. And you can see that. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. There's been a change in their appetite. Now, I think that we are all aware that one of the indicators of, of changes transpiring in someone's physical condition is, is a change of their appetite. And I can tell you stories of that from my own chemotherapy days, foods that I used to like that were just almost repulsive, food that I wasn't that interested in that kind of became a staple. And you, you, could, you could talk about that in various seasons of life. Um, some of you men remember what it was like to live with a pregnant wife for the first time. In almost six years of our marriage, before there was any uh, sign of, of Samuel coming along, when, when uh, my wife and I would go out to eat, um, I made sure that I didn't order what she ordered, because I would always get to eat whatever I ordered, and then at least half of what she ordered. And it was a great setup. <laughs> then one night, several weeks, weeks into her first pregnancy, um, she actually stopped into my office uh, with me about 9 o'clock at night. And in those days before cell phones and all, we were checking our voicemails a, a fair amount more. And so I checked mine, and I called a fellow back, and, and um, we talked about meeting uh, the next day at lunch um, at Baker Square Restaurant. And... Uh, when I hung up the, uh, the phone and Karen had just been, you know, overhearing this conversation, she just said, you know, I haven't been to Baker Square in a while. Uh, we're, we're, we need to go again sometime soon. I thought, yeah, sure, we can go to Baker Square. It's a, that's a good idea. And um, we walk out to the car and we start to drive and she says, um, I think we're going to need to go to Baker Square tonight. Ah, uh, well, you know, that was out of the norm, and Baker Square is a little bit out of the way for us, but I thought French silk pie, you know, a, a piece of that, which is kind of a favorite uh, of our family there, you know, that would be okay, and, and we could make it quick. And uh, we got to Baker Square, and she was asking for a menu, and I'm like, what? I mean, we're just getting pie. <clears throat> and she ordered a full steak dinner. And then she ate every last bite of it, and I didn't get anything. And I'm like, whoa, things are changing around here. And, and the change of appetite was a sign there's stuff going on in her body, right? And, and in the Lord's sermon, he's declaring that a certain appetite of the soul is one way you know a work of God is truly going on in a man's life. He will, if he's responding to the grace of God at work in his life, he will have this that is described here as a hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, as you consider the, the object of that appetite, this matter of righteousness is actually one of the most prominent themes in the Bible. 
So the term righteous or righteousness, um, those terms are recorded well over 500 times. And because that is the case, in, in various places, uh, the same word can have some different reference points. There's some, there's some commonality to it at its most basic level. It has the idea of, of something being straight or conforming to a standard. Um, you, we could chase it through and just see how it's used in, in really basic uh, areas of life to refer to just meeting my obligations. But if you're familiar with the book of Romans or even Galatians, you know that the concept of being justified by faith is interrelated with righteousness. Again, we could work through this at some detail, but to, to justify someone in, in the Roman sense of it is to declare them or regard them as righteous. It is, it is to declare them as having completely met all their obligations to God and man. And Romans says, no man has ever done that. Romans 3.10, there is none, what? There is none righteous, no, not one. And in fact, Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold, or the idea is, who suppress the truth in their unrighteous living. And that is why the gospel that is that central theme of the book of Romans is such good news. And that, Paul said it that way. He said in Romans 1 and verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God to salvation. And then he added that in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. So there is good news for unrighteous sinners that there is a righteousness outside of them that is available to them. And the extended message is that Jesus lived a completely righteous life. He, he did right in every way to God and man. Yet though he was righteous, he voluntarily died on the cross to pay the penalty for unrighteous sinners like every one of us here. And when a sinner is humbled and knows, I can't make myself right with God, and, and my only hope is a righteousness outside of me to be given to me, when a sinner cries out to God for salvation, God, as it were, deposits or credits the righteousness of Jesus Christ to that sinner's account with him. And again, you're familiar with some of these statements, but 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 says that God has made him, referring to Jesus, God's made him to be sent for us. Though he knew no sin, that we might be made what? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And it is absolutely true that you can tell that God is at work in a life and changes are taking place in the soul of a man when there is a longing to have this justifying righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to a man's account with God. That is one of the reference points of righteousness in the scripture. Another reference point for righteousness in the New Testament is, is sanctification, 
or what we have called practical righteousness. A, a progressive, ongoing, more and more changing of my life away from sinful practices, more and more uh, living pattern after Christ. And the connection to the righteousness of Jesus for the believer is not just a positional one. It is very practical. And again, we could go later in, in the book of Romans, in chapter 8 and verse 4, it speaks of the righteousness of the law being fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And, and part of the ongoing uh, declaration of the gospel in Romans is that at salvation, the rule of sin and the reign of the flesh is broken in a definite way. And the new relationship with Christ radically alters the mindset and, and there's a new presence of the Spirit within that, that compels the one that now has a righteous standing with God that compels them to live more and more like Christ. This sanctification righteousness is so much connected to our salvation that it is actually one of the marks of an authentic saving relationship. 1 John, I'm not having to turn to any of these, but 1 John 3 and verse 7 says, Let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is what? Is righteous even as he is righteous. So there, there is positional justifying righteousness but to somebody that is really born again by the spirit of god there is practical doing of righteousness jesus can't touch your life in a real way and you not begin to reflect him later in first john 3 and verse 10 in this the children of god are manifest and the children of the devil whoever doeth not righteousness is not of god so, so this ongoing pursuit of a life that is more and more set apart from sin, more and more like Christ, is a sign that someone does have a saving relationship with God. And, and a true Christian does hunger and thirst after this work of the Spirit of God in his life. And when we're giving more detailed attention to the teaching of justification righteousness and sanctification righteousness, we can note connections like we've just done. We can also note some differences. Um, you could probably start to, if you get your mind thinking down, justification is positional. It's a one-time act of God. It is forever settled. Just when the sinner cries out in faith to God to save him, it's done. Sanctification is, is not positional. It's practical. It's not momentary it's ongoing and it isn't finished we're not going to arrive at the finished version until we are in heaven right and and we could spend much more time exploring those concepts kind of individually we could explore them in connection with each other and if i was going to do that i would have had us turning all right so that we're walking through it and seeing all of it but to arrive at more precision about justification righteousness, sanctification righteousness, to, to arrive at more depth of understanding about those concepts, we would have to explore teaching that comes later in the New Testament than this sermon that Jesus preached on this mountain to this audience that is out there on that hillside. 
And what we've already noted this morning, I mean, I've mentioned Romans and Galatians and 1 John, and, and all of those books uh, of Scripture were written at least decades after Jesus preached. Now, for us today that, that have the completed New Testament, I do agree that, that the application of hungering and thirsting after righteousness includes justification, and it includes sanctification. Somebody that, that is in a blessed state with God, again, looks for a righteousness outside of them. He desires the Spirit of God to be doing something inside of them to make him more and more like Christ. All right, but with all of that said, I want to back up to Matthew chapter 5 and this time in Jesus' teaching. And I believe that there is a more general sense of righteousness that Jesus was driving at with these people. When he said, blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, there's something more general than justification and sanctification. And that general sense, I think, is helpful to us. Now, several commentators go into extensive discussion far more than what I've done, to just kind of build the case for making note of the fact that righteousness, as it's used here, when Jesus says, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, that this is just, in general, referring to somebody uh, wanting to be right with God. Righteousness in this sense is, is a desire to be right with God. Now, you can go back and catch the flow. In, in verse number 3, again, I, I, I confess that I am what it says, that I'm a spiritual beggar in a destitute condition. I, I in verse 4, do what it says. I grieve over my sin. In verse 5, I'm responding as it calls for there with meekness and humility and brokenness about my state with God. And now in verse 6, this same blessed person wants to be right with God. I'm a beggar. I grieve over my sin. I'm responding with brokenness. And what I want is I want to be right with God. That's, that's the hunger and thirst. That is the, that's the target of this. And... And we need to think about the earnestness that is reflected in this imagery of hungering and thirsting. Because if you were to talk about somebody who's hungry, who's thirsty, it is to talk about somebody, again, that has an appetite to get something. Right? I mean, if you're talking about hungry in the most literal sense, you're talking about somebody who really wants to eat. Right? Not just, I probably should eat. Okay, have you ever talked to somebody and asked them, have you eaten and you know maybe they've been through some hard things and you know there's emotional dynamics and, and so on. And, and you say to them, you really need to eat. And somebody says, I probably should eat, but I just don't have what? I don't have an appetite. Okay? And uh, you might talk to somebody else and um, you might say, hey, do you want to eat? And and they might say, well, I guess I could eat. <laughs> I mean, I don't think there's ever been a time in Daniel's life where he didn't respond that way. <laughs> well, I mean, I, 
I mean, I just had lunch with so-and-so. It's only an hour later, but I could, I could eat. Sure, Dad, you want to go eat? Okay. Um, so it's not just, you know, I probably should or I could, but, but to be hungry is to be like, you know, I'm at the place of making eating a priority. Okay. If I don't eat soon, I'm not going to be able to concentrate on anything else. Right? It's starting to kind of take over. I've got to eat. And, and you know that we use that term figuratively to describe all sorts of cravings for certain objects in life. So, you know, we'll talk about a sports team and we'll say, that team was really hungry for a win. Or, or maybe they're hungry to get back to the playoffs because they are hungry for a championship. It's not just a few wins. We'll, we'll talk about businessmen. We'll talk about students and, and, and on and on in various realms that, that are hungry for success in a certain arena. Okay. And the combination of this imagery, and again, the way I think that we should be understanding righteousness here, this is bringing us to think of somebody that has a craving. They have an earnest desire to be right with God. I mean, they, I, I am at the place of making, getting right with God the priority of my life. And Jesus says, somebody that's like that, now they're in a blessed condition. And you can think about illustrations of this from the Bible. Think about the psalmist who in Psalm 14 and verse 1 said, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. We have in our worship guide this morning, Psalm 63 and verse 1, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsts for thee, my flesh longs for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Or you can think about Job. Job 23 and verse 12. Neither have I gone back from the commandments of, of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. The priority right now of my life is that I've got to be right with God. I want to know his words so that I can walk in obedience with him. I want to have his presence. I want to have his fellowship. I can't, there can't be distance between me and God. Now you know that that just isn't anywhere close to the appetite of most people on the earth. Right? And most people would actually just confess that. But the fact is, that isn't, that isn't even the appetite of most religious people on the earth. There, there are people that here and there pursue, you know, something that God's interested in. I mean, I'm, God's interested in me going to church, so I probably should go to church. I mean, at least here and there I should go to church. Right? Or God's interested in this, and, and, and so I probably should do some of that. I'll throw a little of that into my life here and there. It, it's kind of like their token righteousness. But they aren't craving being entirely right with God. 
They, they aren't going to be like really, really egregiously, you know, unrighteous because there's some sense of, you know, fear that that would probably get them on God's bad side. But the fact is, for most people, it, it is not that being entirely right with God is really the consuming priority of their life. For most people, the priority of their life is to be happy. And in some cases, what they crave is more money. Because they think that the money can contribute to them being happy. Or what they crave is a certain relationship. Because that relationship will make me happy. Or they crave a certain position. Because if I get that position, that position will, will make me happy. Or they crave a certain achievement or a certain possession. I saw a video this week of a, of a lady giving her, blindfolding her husband and having him walk up the driveway and took the blindfold off and she had bought him a brand new red Corvette. And the guy fell to his knees in tears, overwhelmed at, at him getting his lifelong dream. When I get that, I will be happy. And, and, and people will stay hungry over an extended period of time in pursuit of their cravings. Or maybe, as you know, uh, the, the priority will end up being trying to strike the right balance. Because money alone can't do it if my relationships are what? If my relationships are a mess, what is money going to do? So the, the craving is for the right balance of all these different things. But the ultimate end is still what? It's still happiness. And you know that in the name of pleasure, people pursue the highs that you can get with drugs and alcohol and sex, and they, they pursue the thrills of a certain hobby, or just kind of the nonstop pursuit of some other exhilarating experience. i got to do something, right? I mean, I can't live a life deprived of entertainment. No way! And some people spend their entire life in pursuit of their craving. And, and really, they, they almost see it as a matter of honor to not give up the pursuit. Others come to grips with the fact that, that I'm not really going to get all the money I want. It doesn't look like I'm going to get the relationship I want. Or maybe they get the money or the relationship or the achievement that they thought would be so thrilling or at least satisfying and fulfilling at some level, and it, it doesn't give them the happiness and the pleasure they were looking for it to give. I remember, I don't know, uh, now somebody else could tell me how many Super Bowls Tom Brady has won, but after the third Super Bowl that he won, I, I watched an interview with him, and he just said, I mean, I thought when I got to the top that it would be this, this incredible satisfaction and fulfillment and it isn't. 
And who knows how long he's going to play just in continual pursuit of whatever it is to find it somewhere. And some people end up arriving at such strong disillusionment with the lack of fulfillment in life. That is, they've, they've had this craving and they pursued it. And they've had this hunger and, and, and they don't find fulfillment in it even when they get whatever the thing is they, they, they got to sink their teeth into and it doesn't fulfill. And some people have such strong disillusionment that they just give it up altogether and think it'd be better to just end life now. Many others that won't go to that extent they still, you know, as they face this, they, they settle into a mindset of, you know, my life isn't, it's never going to be all I want it to be. But the fact is, it's not all that terrible either. And I just need to adjust and make the most of it. But there's still this kind of vague, semi-disillusionment with life. And... You know, the fact is that as parents, we can kind of arrive at that place for ourselves where we realize, you know, I'm just not going to get all my dreams and, and accept it and yet do seemingly everything we can within our power to ensure that if I don't get my happiness, at least my kids are going to have it, right? And so parents will overspend and, and parents will get involved in, in their kids' lives in such a way that seems to reflect that, that it, you know, our happiness is going to somehow be in their happiness. And we're just going to ensure that they're happy in every way possible. But in doing so, we point them down pathways and expectations that aren't going to work for them either. And since I'm talking about some of the more uh, subtle forms, I'll just go ahead and mention the disillusionment people can find in ministry. <clears throat> you know, maybe you wouldn't expect a life of secular pursuits to be fulfilling, but somebody headed into ministry or whatever, you know, setting apart some time for ministry, you could expect maybe that in the ministry, that's where real satisfaction is going to be found. But even in ministry, we can pursue some kind of elusive idea of success that we see is at the, right at the heart of fulfillment. For me to be fulfilled in ministry, I've got to be successful in ministry. And, and some might kind of fend off the disillusionment temporarily by compromising to get more success. But somewhere, the lack of satisfaction and fulfillment is going to crash down on a minister and leave preachers and other Christian workers disillusioned. But I'm going to tell you this morning, on the authority of this preaching of Jesus, that it doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter what season of life you are in. Jesus promises that if you will make being right with God, the righteousness we're talking about, if you will make that the earnest 
pursuit of your life as the priority. I mean, you, you make your priority the pursuit of obedience with him by faith. You make the priority hating the sin that robs you of a relationship with him. You, you make even the laying aside of the weights that's do, that do drag you down in pursuit of being right with him. If you make those purposes the priority of your life, look at what Jesus promises you. Look again in verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be what? They shall, you can say it with me, they shall be... They shall be filled. They shall be, we can say other terms, they shall be satisfied. I can even say it this way. They shall be fulfilled. They, they will have the longings of their heart met in a way by God that nothing else in the pursuit of any other object in life can meet. Jesus said in John 4 and verse 13 to the woman at the well, do you remember this? He said, whoever drinks of this water is going to thirst again. <clears throat> but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Psalm 34. Listen, listen to these statements by the psalmist. He said, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those that fear him, and he delivereth them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. Those who seek the Lord shall not want of any good thing. Here's the psalmist saying, listen, when what I have made crying out to God and fellowship with God and the pursuit of God and being right with God, when I have made that the priority of my life, I have found this. I have never lacked anything. No good thing. And I want to urge you to taste and see that the Lord is good for yourself. When you think about some of the gifts that God gives to our lives, that some of God's gifts are, are part of the blessing. I say every gift that God gives is part of the blessing and can be enjoyed in its rightful place. I think about something as simple as this. Proverbs 18.22 says, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor from the Lord. A good wife, a good husband, a good marriage is a precious gift to be enjoyed from God. And, and other passages encourage us to enjoy our spouses. But I want to tell you, it doesn't matter what good woman you've married men or what good man a woman could marry there is a place in the heart of every man that no spouse can fill but god alone can fill 
And if you go into even Christian marriage thinking that, that the Christian marriage is going to look like the brief ending of every Hallmark movie, I'm telling you, you're going to be disillusioned. It's become a, a fairly frequent occurrence for me to see Christian people posting on social media and they say something like, family is everything. Or they might say, friends are everything. That's nonsense. And, and the fact is, you will know it to be nonsense sooner or later. I can't be more thankful for the family that God has given me. This isn't, this isn't anywhere coming out of, oh, I wonder what's going on in the Fuller's house. Not at all. But there are needs of my own heart that my family can't meet. My wife better have something between her and God that is her own. Because I do disappoint her. And honestly, when I'm at my best, I still can't meet every need. And each of my kids better have a relationship with God that is their own and make it a first-rate priority to be right with God because there are needs of their heart that mom and dad can't meet and nobody else can meet and only God alone can meet. And when life goes completely sideways or even upside down in terms of your finances or some relationship or some end you've been working at for some time and all of a sudden it's just completely blown to pieces and now that's off. And, and you're not going to get any satisfaction in that thing. Or it's not going to come anywhere close to what you thought it was going to be. God still remains the same. And he will meet every need you have. If you will just purpose to be as right with God as you know how to be. He says so. Dear friend, if you, if you have an earnest desire to be right with God as a first-rate priority, and you will do like James exhorts, if you will draw near to God. Listen to this. If you will draw near to God, he will do what? He will draw near to you. And his presence will fill the emptiness in you. Like not, no possession, no relationship, no thing, no achievement, no purpose, no objective, like nothing else can do. His presence will fill the emptiness in you and the longing in you and the desire of your heart like nothing else will do. And if you'll draw near to God as the first-rate priority and he, draws near, and he draws near to you as he's promised and he meets your needs, you will be in a blessed state before God. Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes this morning?
And I want to give opportunity for all of us to just say, in terms of agendas and priorities, cravings, longings, appetites, where has being entirely right with God been? Has that been really the hunger and the thirst of your life? And I, I really, I am not saying any of this this morning to beat anybody up with it. I mean, we, we could certainly go down the path of how dare we rob God of first priority and all that. And I mean, it would all be true. He's worthy of it all. How dare we withhold but that's not even where Jesus goes. Where Jesus goes is, look, if you will make pursuing being right with God the first-rate priority, my Father will fill you like nothing else can fill you and meet your needs. So where there needs to be confession, confess this morning. Respond meekly. But then, let the truth draw you to the Lord. 